Hello and welcome to Meta Perspective with Matt and Andy, the show where we explore how to think, act and be in an uncertain and complex world. This is our very first episode and we are really excited to be able to share it with you. But what do you need to know before we start out on this adventure together? Well, first of all, this is an unfolding dialogue that spans multiple episodes. This episode in particular is like a whirlwind tour across many of the topics and themes that we are going to be discussing over the course of this podcast. So don't worry if anything goes over your head, because we will be revisiting and diving deeper into a lot of the things you're about to hear today. This conversation was recorded in September 2020, where this journey begins. The whole genesis of this show began with Andy and I wanting to understand and figure out what underlies this current moment in time and explore that together. So let's dive into this episode and see what emerges. If at any point you want to get in touch, send us an email to hello at metaperspective.io to continue the conversation. We both really hope you enjoy the show. It's been a really long time that we've been talking about this and to actually begin is kind of surreal. It is. It was several months ago, wasn't it, when we first explored this idea of doing something together. We've been obviously hit with COVID and maybe dancing around our handbags a little bit, wondering when to plunge in and do it. And here we are, finally, having the conversation we long talked about. I can't remember if we actually spoke about it before the pandemic happened or after. I think it was before the pandemic I think you'd interviewed me a couple of times and we had some conversations and you were even in London. Remember we met at the Royal Society of Arts, the RSA. Oh, yeah. And we thought, yeah, why don't we do this? We seem to share this common deep quest for understanding and sense-making in a slightly strange world. And why didn't we think about setting up these conversations between us to explore some of these topics. Uh, And then, of course, COVID hit and the world turned upside down. And in a really strange way, it's actually accelerated a lot of the things that you and I have had in our minds for quite a while. So if anything, it's made these kind of conversations even more important, I would say. I agree. I think some of the fractures that were already present in a lot of areas of society, life, politics, institutions were widened significantly in the COVID crisis and almost brought to the surface for everyone to see some of the fundamental issues that have long been building but were accelerated dramatically during the COVID crisis. So the things we were thinking about, talking about, have become even more prescient and important. The thing that it reminds me of is the concept of a black swan when it comes to the pandemic, because you could never have predicted what was going to happen. But in a way, it's allowed lots of people and lots of ideas and lots of trends to really ramp up and come to the fore as a result of this crisis. People couldn't have predicted necessarily, but as a result, people have been able to really take advantage of certain things, like the acceleration towards remote work, for example. Something that was probably going to happen over time has just completely come to the forefront all of a sudden. Yes, you're right there. Although one of the things that's been interesting is a reflection more generally uh, on how Black Swan event was this and 
you know, Black Swan being a sort of completely unforeseen event that can have catastrophic impact. And of course, there are lots of people saying for some considerable time that pandemics were a real possibility and that they were one of the things that could have a huge devastating impact on the world. And there's been quite a lot of conversations about the fact that there are an increasing array of potential black swan events that are arising around the world at the moment. And one of the interesting things which we touched on a little bit in our conversations before is the sense in which the world has become somewhat fragile with its extended international supply chains, everything being optimized. There's been very little capacity to deal with the unexpected and something of the unexpected obviously happened with COVID on a scale that's knocked over many of our systems, institutions, economies in a way that has, as you rightly said, sort of brought to the fore some of the problems within them and the, some of the fragilities and some of the complexities of the modern world that we hadn't really fully understood. But one of the implications of that, of course, as you indicate, is the need to act and think differently in a world where there is a virus present in our environment and the need for isolation, social distancing and remote working has brought technology to the fore and technology mediated conversations, business, politics, which has brought in some ways some benefits, but also as we're seeing through some of the political discourse has its darker side as well. (laughs) So these are fascinating times for us psychologically and also civilizationally. And there are many, many things to discuss, which I really look forward to talking to you about. And one of the things that this pandemic has done in terms of its ability to reach into our lives is it's one of the first things in my lifetime that I can think of that's been able to permeate every stratum, every level of society, from a personal level to an institutional level, national, global level. There isn't a single human being on this planet, I would imagine, or almost no one on this planet that hasn't been affected at some level by the situation that this has created. So it means that all of a sudden, the things that we can discuss will have a common ground. We have this kind of opportunity now to have real conversations across different boundaries, which really excites me. Yes, a lot of people have said it's almost as though we had the experience of finding ourselves on a hamster wheel and having to suddenly step off and think, oh my God, there's another world. There are people around me that I had ignored. My neighbours, my community, people I hadn't really paid much attention to are actually there and present and important. I have time to look sideways at things that I had ignored. It was almost as though we were trapped in our individual bubbles of what was important to keep that hamster wheel going. And as you said, this shared experience has revealed the fact that there is a common humanity, a common human civilization that exists beyond just the narrow confines of what I do every day as part of my work. And this really is a a important moment to kind of stop and pause and reflect on where have we got to, what kind of world were we in? And now we see the cracks in it all around. What are those cracks? What might we do about them? And how might we take this moment collectively to reflect on where we are in the world and what we might do differently and better 
moving forward. And there's some really fascinating conversations going on in many different domains around that. I think, you know, there's always the shadow side to everything. And obviously, this is a time also of, for many people, a time of isolation, a type of fear, a time of uncertainty. And we're also seeing an explosion of perhaps more extreme manifestations of people's fears projected into the world. So that's also a feature of what's going on and something that is worthy of exploring deeply, in, I think, in our conversations too. Yeah. And I think in this kind of experimental chat, if you like, we should use this opportunity to talk about how we arrived, you and I, at this point and what we think we can do with the conversations that we want to have. I think I would just add to what you were saying, as well as the fear-based situation that some people and a lot of people have gone through, that experience of fear, lots of people are feeling that. I think a lot of people have kind of been stopped in their tracks as well and have been almost confronted with themselves. And that also brings a lot of opportunity to reevaluate your life, to reflect upon your role in society, to reflect upon, am I living a life well lived? Like, what can I be doing differently? And a lot of people that I have conversations with are taking this kind of slowed down life and slowed down time to reflect upon how they might act differently. And I think that for me has been one of the key catalysts in wanting to have these discussions, because I think a lot of people are seriously reflecting on the life that they're living and are actually keen and eager to change in some way and improve their own lives, which for me is a big driver in having these conversations. Yes, I would agree. I think you know, being a, a little bit older than you, <laughs> it, it's been an interesting opportunity to reflect personally on coming to London as I did maybe 30 years ago or almost 30 years ago in a very different world pre-internet, pre-mobile throne, uh, a much more isolated world that forced you to confront and engage with reality rather than the virtual world, which is so prevalent around us at the moment. And how do you make sense of who you are and how do you bond and fit into a world where there's only the real world, not the virtual world? And obviously living through the emergence of mobile phone, the internet, and the virtual world that now connects and mediates so much of modern day life. Through that, I mean, I've always been personally interested in how do we make meaning? Who am I and how to live well? And how does this changing world I'm living change how we think about ourselves and our role in the world? And you're right. I think this sudden discontinuity, this sudden stop caused by COVID and the lockdown that so many people have been impacted by. Obviously, some people have had to work harder, but a lot of people have been forced to stop. Is also a moment of reflecting, to what degree was I just carrying out a life that the system required of me and I was participating in a kind of thoughtless way? And how much of my life is really what I believe in, what I need, what I want? Who am I? And am I living an authentic life that's true to myself? Or am I carrying out a, a life fulfilling the expectations of others and society? So I think you're right. I think a lot of people are reflecting more deeply on themselves and trying to take a step back and think about who am I and what kind of life am I living and what might I learn from this that can inform how I might live differently moving forwards? It's almost 
I don't know how to really explain it, but for me, it feels like a lot of us were just sleepwalking in life. We got so used to a certain way of living, certain routines, certain habits, that we weren't living completely mindfully in what we were doing. So now we have a unique opportunity to reevaluate our quality of life, what gives us purpose and meaning. Can I have a higher quality of life working remotely than I do in an office is one that I'm sure pretty much anyone in the workplace is asking themselves right now. And how would those situations affect us going forward? Will that completely change the work environment? Will that create new opportunities for us? There are so many things within this podcast for me that I'd love to dig into. And one of the challenges that you and I have, because we both love running off in tangents and exploring the big picture is thinking, okay, how do we dig into one specific topic and make it accessible and actionable to people so that as well as connecting all of the dots, we can say, okay, well, what could the future be if remote working is the next big thing? I think that's something that I can really speak to having been a remote worker for the past eight years. There are obviously a ton of advantages to remote working and there are obvious disadvantages that come with that. And knowing about these things in advance and being able to think about them and weigh them up is all part of evaluating your lifestyle, evaluating your quality of life, that this standstill, this discontinuation of what was normal life has brought us, which means there is just so much that we can explore over the course of these episodes. I agree. There is such a huge landscape of things that I can't wait to explore with you. And As you say, changing working practices, working from home, what does that mean? Can we work better or not when isolated at home? Will our virtual Zoom-based world substitute for all that was there in the real-world interactions that we have with people? Or is there something lost? Is there something gained? What does that mean in terms of how we bond and create and innovate and trust each other? These are fantastic questions. And also, as well as how we work that has forced us to think more deeply about our health. What is health and how do we maintain it and look after it? And what degree do we depend on health systems and what should they do or shouldn't they do? And of course, for many of us, it's put us at economic vulnerability. So what is the role of economics in our life, the role of money, the role of how much we think we should be earning? Is the pursuit of money and status that we've been taught in our society, many people are reflecting that maybe this is an area that's also caused us to reevaluate and rebalance what is important in my life and what I dedicate myself to. How do I find my status and esteem if it isn't about money and the material things? What does it mean to know stuff in the world? For a lot of people, this is a time of reflecting, do I need to upskill myself we're faced with perhaps my job isn't secure as it once was and perhaps there was always a tendency in the background for uh, a world that's changing radically with automation coming along the need to learn and continually develop myself what is the importance of that and how much is my responsibility or is it the state or is it my work's responsibility and how much stuff do I even know about the world because when you look more broadly there are big changes and trials and tribulations in politics, economics, and what's going on in the world. How do I make sense of that? What is going on in the world? And does it matter to me? And what is my disposition to that? There are so many amazing areas that I hope in our conversations, we'll get a chance to deep dive into to really, I think, explore what we've each individually thought and learnt. I know we both plumbed into quite a few interesting thinkers and conversations looking at these areas. And It'd be great to sort of 
synthesize and dialogue between us of what we've mutually found and explored. And I'm sure and I hope that this will prove interesting to people listening who likewise are probably approaching some of these subjects and maybe haven't had the opportunity to do the deep diving work that we have on thinking about them. Yeah, one of our major challenges on this show is figuring out how to communicate and make accessible some of the big thoughts and ideas that people are battling with. I mean, one of the things that I did having the pandemic disrupt my life, just like everyone else, is I spent time looking into psychology and philosophy and subjects that maybe every day I wouldn't necessarily come across. But for me, they just invigorated me because I realized that to understand where we are, we have to understand how we think, why we think, and what shaped our minds to this point, what shaped our societies. And I think a lot of people that have gone into this pandemic and seen this as a massive wake-up call are saying, how did we as a group of people, how did we as a society arrive at this point? How did we get to this kind of lifestyle where we weren't considering the bigger picture, where we weren't necessarily seeing how fragile our world is? And I think one of the things that the pandemic's certainly done for me is it's made me realize that we are living within history we are part of a story, we're part of a journey, and nothing is certain anymore. And I think one of the things that really grounds our podcast and is one of the central themes for us is there is just so much uncertainty that is rapidly increasing. How do you live in a world where you are constantly confronted by uncertainty? And how do you navigate yourself through that, both on a personal level, in your work, on a global level, like on all of these different stratas? How do you do it? And, and why is it important to think about it? Why, why not just switch off? Why not just put the world away and tuck it underneath the carpet? Why is it important to engage? And how can you engage without facing this incredible sense of dread and overwhelm? Yes, that's such an important question. Through psychology, we know that the more uncertainty people are faced with, the more anxiety that's likely to produce and the more likely that the reptilian brain will sort of come in and try and create certainty for us to hold on to because we need some certainty to feel comfortable in the world. But the risk of going to certainty without understanding or being able to frame and properly digest the complexity is that a lot of those certainties are false certainties. And a lot of those false certainties can lead us down blind alleys or contribute to the wider confusion in the world that we're seeing. So how to take a step back and encounter and sense make, if you like, from all this uncertainty, I think is a key area for all of us individually and collectively for our own mental health. But also, I think, collectively, how do we move forward without going systemically bananas with the, the level of complexity and uncertainty that now surrounds us? And it's quite interesting, you know, a lot of people will counter and say, what are you talking about? We, we live in the best of times. We've never been healthier well, apart from COVID, <laughs> wealthier and more secure, crime rates are down, people are richer. But on the other hand, we've got more mental health problems, we've got more damage to the environment, we've got many things that are going down, as well as things going up. And one of the interesting insights from some of the thinkers we've been listening to, I think, is that when you get a system where things are both getting better and worse 
at the same time, that's a signal that the entire system itself is becoming unstable, that there are various vectors in it going off in different directions. And I think intuitively, when we take a step back and think about the world as it is now, it does feel as though there is instability building in all levels. There are some things getting better, but a lot of things getting worse. And I think one of the things we'd love to explore is why are things getting better? Why are things getting worse? And what might be the meta-structural things that are causing the potential for cracks and a breakdown in the whole world system that we're in? And I really like, and I look forward to the conversations around what you said about zooming out and seeing if we only look at our present moment through the lens of now, it's very hard to make sense of all the various forces at play in the world. It's through zooming out and seeing through this, that we are in a moment of history, that there is a long history that led us to this moment. So a lot of the things we see around us are there because historically, either through evolution or cultural evolution or through political economic evolution, we've got to this moment in time. And that maybe through that broader lens, we can see baked into where we are now some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses of that. And this can hopefully afford us some richer and deeper and bigger insightful thinking that can help us think about with that wisdom and with that knowledge, can we see a direction of where we go in the future that isn't just driven from the madness of the moment that we find ourselves in, but informed hopefully by a deeper understanding of the undercurrents that led us to this moment and where they might take us. For me, in my personal experience, there's nothing more grounding to me than understanding your place in history and what's come before you and what could come after you and understand how you're connected to this giant story. I know it's not necessarily the most in-trend way of saying things because we have this breakdown of the grand narratives now and the meta-narratives that undergird our societies. But for me, understanding that we are in this huge story makes me feel like there's a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning to the world that we're in. And the more we can dig into that and understand what's come before us and the legacies that have shaped us, the more power we have to construe the next reality, the next world that we want to be part of. You were saying lots of things are getting worse and lots of things are getting better and it's a sign of instability. I see the kind of tension there is between the things that have come before us that are worth keeping, that are valuable to us versus the new things that are worth embracing. And that constant tension is which ones are worth keeping and which ones are worth embracing. And sometimes we get rid of the things that are worth keeping by accident, let's say, or because we just don't know better. And sometimes we fail to embrace the things that need to be embraced. So it's almost like, let's do some sense making to understand what has come before us that is valuable. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. But similarly, what's holding us back right now from embracing certain methodologies, ideas, visions, programs, institutions that could radically shape our society and it's constantly trying to navigate between the two which is important yes all that glitters is not gold so there is i think in and again it's very interesting and informative to step back and look at the sort of arc of history we're familiar with fashions in terms of clothes and looks and shoes and things we wouldn't be seeing dead in today that 10 years ago were the height of fashion this i think also plays out in cultural and political thought as well. There are things that of the moment seemed really important, but as time moves on and with 
fresh perspective or different context that we find ourselves in in a globalized world that these things are no longer seen as important something else is seen as important and you know one of the interesting developments in the last 30 40 years in particular has been this sort of acknowledgement that there are other voices that we need to include in the conversation of what human progress means but these new and different perspectives important as they are also need to be balanced against the fact that we live on one planet and that many of the challenges that we face as a human race and a human civilization are global in nature whether it's the destruction of the environment and the potential for us to permanently destroy for human habitation the substructure in which we depend like the environment that's nothing that could be done by a single group or a single country that's a global phenomenon some of the issues around emerging technology and AI and terrorism and bio-warfare. Many of the features of the world that we're now creating require us to come together to think about human civilization and its well-being as a whole. So how do we both capture the need to think holistically about ourselves as a human civilization while also recognizing that there are contested elements that different groups within that want and how do we hold that together in a collective dialogue that enables your whole of human civilization to progress forward rather than collapsing into dispute and conflict these are all fascinating and really important questions that are facing humanity and i know we've done some thinking about it and these are other areas that would be great to get into during our series I think one of the things that undergirds that, and I think something that will come up in almost every episode to a certain extent, is the tension between the agent and the environment the agent is within. What I mean by that is increasing an individual's sense of self-responsibility and their effectiveness in the world, their sense of being able to do something about the things in their life versus how much the environment plays a role in that agent's ability to affect change in that life. And we're always going to be in some way or another, talking about how do we improve the environment so that people can live better lives and how can we give people better tools so that they can live a better life themselves. And I think that that's going to constantly come up when we're thinking about dealing with uncertainty and dealing with a new world. How do we help people to increase their sense of agency? And what can we be doing within our world, within our society, to help people to make smarter decisions, to feel like they are more empowered? And there's going to be a constant strain between those two because there is a tension running through changing an environment versus allowing someone a sense of freedom and responsibility. How do you actually measure those and balance those. I think that's going to be an undercurrent in almost all of our conversations. Yeah, absolutely right. I think this is one of the key questions that hovers around most of the topics we've talked about and will be talking about. This sort of sense between nature and the nurture on one point, uh, you might think of it in, in those terms, but also this idea of autonomy and sovereignty that I am the master of my own life, my own desires and thoughts, that I see myself as having the ability to make choices in the world in a way that allows me to live authentically to who I am versus what does the system around me expect of me and increasingly influence me to think and believe is in my interest. 
Now, I think, you know, historically, when we lived in small communities, which we've evolved for arguably hundreds of thousands of years, that's probably where our our psychology is most at home. But the world we're building around us, as we've talked earlier through its increasing complexity, and I think one really interesting feature is the role of technology, which is increasingly getting more intimately woven into our everyday life, whether it's the news feeds on our social media or through the fact that so much of our life is mediated through technology. Technology is getting more information about us, is shaping how we experience the world, and there are interesting business forces and algorithms acting behind that who are trying to influence what we do and what we think and how we make sense of the world. So if you run that further forward, and as many commentators talked about, the world that we inhabit is increasingly plugged into us. And one view of that is that we become more and more like the matrix. (laughs) Environment is shaping us so completely that what we see and perceive and think is in our interest has already been determined for us. Or we could enter a world where there is the the technology and the possibilities that augment the potential of each of us to authentically live a sovereign life enables a richness of individuality and out of that a creativity from our coming together that yields a whole new dawn of a richer humanity to come that we could be so excited about and it's not clear which of those or some combination will come in the future and i think rather than let things happen this is a process i think individually and collectively we consciously should participate in what is the kind of world we want to bring into being and the relationship between the individual and the increasingly complex automated society that we're building around us that that threshold that dialogue between the individual and the collective i think is a is a really important area to explore i think when you and i have spoken off podcast kind of where we've got to with the agent versus the environment or the arena nature versus nurture however we want to frame it is creating an environment that enables a human being to have an increased sense of agency seems like the right place to play so that when we're talking about technology being interwoven into our lives rather than technology being designed to keep our eyeballs on a screen to give us cheap dopamine hits 24 7 designing technology that increases agency would mean completely reimagining how technology should and would be used by a human being so that they are able to maximize their potential so just to spitball as an idea, rather than being on Instagram and infinite scrolling, even the concept of an infinite scroll, the idea that you're just literally keeping your eyeballs on the screen. But if we were saying, well, actually, how does our environment, our arena enable more agency? What if after two or three minutes, the phone is actually saying, hey, you haven't done much uh, walking around today. You've been on your screen quite a long time. Why don't you go outside? It's really going to be beneficial to you. Why don't we reimagine how technology can infiltrate into our lives in a way that increases our sense of autonomy and sovereignty? And I feel like that's going to be a really interesting discussion as well. Absolutely. This is one area that I've been particularly interested in in my career, which is how do we understand what is valuable to people? How do we think about things that increase people's autonomy, agency, 
well-being? How do we create value for people such that they benefit through greater sovereignty and authenticity, a better quality of life, better well-being, etc.? How do we even think about that question? Because it's a profoundly deep question, which is requiring us to look more deeply into what matters to us as individuals. And how do we find meaning in that? And how might we augment our own well-being through the use of technology? And then attached to that technology are the institutions that give rise to that technology, which in and of themselves have a business model or a philosophy of how they go about their work of creating the technology. And what you highlighted is such an important point is that when the business models that drive how institutions act and think are in, I think you're talking about a lot about the sort of social media ones in particular, where there's a business model that maximizes human action to drive value to an organization that's divorced from what is creating value for the individual. We've got the risk that institutions, whether public sector or private sector, increasingly using technology to optimize for what they think is important and what's important to them and not what's important for creating value for us as individuals and society. And when you look a little bit further forward at the power of AI to do that substantially more powerfully and better than before, are we at the risk of optimizing our institutions in such a way that they extract from us in ever more clever, subtle and powerful ways or seek to get us to conform with what they want us to do? Or are institutions in service of driving and maximizing our agency and sovereignty such that we may fulfill individually and collective more authentic and fulfilling lives. I think this is such an important question to dive into because I suspect that we're more one than the other at the moment. And one could argue that this is an important moment in history to reflect on this before we industrialize through AI another layer of power into whatever philosophy and business model drives our institutions or, or our arena, as you described it. This brings to mind for me, who programs the programmer? In the sense, mm. who watches the watcher? What are the organizing principles? What are driving our institutions to make decisions for us? And there is just so much that can go wrong with that. It yeah. actually does worry me quite a lot. And one of the things that I'd like to achieve with this podcast is to increase people's sense of understanding, sense of agency, sense of an ability to navigate these potential yeah. problems. Because I think one of the main guards against this idea of programming, even if it's well-intentioned, let's say with my example of technology that's designed to give you more time away from your phone, maybe that's a good idea, maybe not, who knows? And there can be unintended consequences of that. One of the guards against that, our collective immune system, if you like, is our sense of individual responsibility for our actions is our ability to look at technology as a tool to understand how to interact with it on a personal responsible level and yes we also need our institutions our companies to have organizing principles that increase human flourishing but there's always going to be unintended consequences by people that are well-intentioned yes and this is such an important area for us to explore i think you know, one of the features of the world that's being brought into being and will increasingly we'll see in front of us is this issue of complexity. It's as though we're now seeing 
the, the entire of the global humanity is connected together, whether it's through social media and technology or supply chains or global culture or travel. And this interconnectedness gives rise to unintended consequences on a huge scale. There's a, a really interesting philosopher, I think it's Luciana Floridi, who, who talks about this sort of problem of meta-ethics, that the sense that even as an individual actor, you think you are doing the right thing and another actor is doing what they think is the right thing. The collective implications of all these actors doing things that they think are right could be something that's quite damaging to society. So it's almost like emergent ethics, the unintended consequences of so many interconnected actors doing what they think is right, but actually creating a holistic situation that can do damage. So one can make the case, you know, social media, we all like to beat that up, but there are potential cases to be made that bringing people together and sharing things together is a great thing to do. It's afforded great connection to families and people across continents and space that's never been possible before. But the way that it's been done across so many platforms is hijacking attention, as you said, through hyper stimulation of dopamine pathways, which is increasingly leading to a mental health problem in our younger people. And one could argue you know, difficulty in having real world conversations and relationships. So what may seem good at one level, when you add it up systemically and collectively, can actually do harms. And I think right across our world at the moment, we have to have a, a wiser, more informed understanding of the world we're bringing into being such that we can see where the possibility for harm or unintended harms may exist and be conscious and aware of that so we could do something about it rather than sleepwalking into it. Yeah. And I think another thing that people just have to assume as a rule is that Anything that's been made technology-wise or anything that has been done with a positive intent, especially when it comes to technology, can and probably will be used in a way that is negative. So when you release a new piece of technology like social media, for example, there are, as a natural consequence to something good being put in the world, ways that that's going to be taken advantage of and leveraged for means that are not in people's best interest. And it's better rather than just thinking, how do we only make things that are good? It's better to be more practical and say, look, anything that we put out into the world can be hijacked, can be leveraged for things that it's not necessarily been intended for. So when someone is making a new piece of technology that's going to maybe cure dementia or Alzheimer's or anything that could radically change our world and be like, okay, that's amazing. We have to also bear in mind when something incredibly amazing comes into the world that helps people, how would that change the world? How should we think about the things that will negatively affect us? What are the consequences of the good things that we put into the world as well? Yes, again, it's a fascinating area we should explore. One way of thinking about technology is the ability to augment our choices, like the ability to do things with greater impact or allow more people to do things they couldn't do before. So it sort of, if you like, leverages choice making in interesting ways. So the ability to use technology to whack someone over the head with a club is one thing if I get angry with you, but if I develop an intercontinental ballistic missile, if I get angry with someone, I can now cause catastrophic harm. So technology can be used both for good, as you say, and for ill. And that raises these moral questions again, which is, 
as we develop more powerful technology, the potential to develop more good in the world also increases exponentially. But our ability to harm each other, should there be actors who are seeking to do that, or if we increase levels of conflict within the world, the ability to use technology and repurpose it against each other also yields exponential potential as well. So we need to think really carefully about creating exponential powers for human beings if we haven't got the wisdom or maturity and calmness of thought. We're soon going to have the power of gods, but we need the wisdom and love of gods to know how to use that, or we're going to potentially screw ourselves up while trying to build a better world. (laughs) For me, there's a sense of inevitability that when you introduce a new piece of technology or something that has positive intended consequences, that it will be misused. It's not a question of, oh, it might be misused. Ultimately, in some way, at some point in time, it will be. Putting something good into the world, you already have to think two steps ahead, like CRISPR. Okay, Mm. great. We're going to be able to do gene editing. We're going to be able to cure diseases. But inevitably, someone at some point is going to do something horrific with it, either unintentional or intentional. Do you know what I'm trying to get at there? Yes. And it's going to be really difficult to address that because take CRISPR, for example. Yeah, you could use CRISPR technology to remove or modify the gene to remove things like cystic fibrosis from ever being an affliction that people will ever need to, to suffer with. But you could also get actors using, as you say, gene editing to try and aesthetically improve some facet of their physicality and the potential harm from that that could also find its way into propagating into the next generation of humanity. We could be making decisions that affect humans for the next thousand years. So these are big decisions that could be used for good or for ill. And how do we think about that? CRISPR is quite an interesting one because one of the facets of this technology, which could only be done by government-sponsored research labs that had the amount of money and the sophistication of technology to do it, the development of that technology is coming down in costs so dramatically, the sophistication of the technology is becoming so much better, that there's also another vector to consider, which is the democratization of these exponential technologies. So it will be in the hands of more people to do stuff that could be for good or for ill. So how do we deal with a situation where more and more people, not just state actors, but sub-state actors or even potentially individuals could be marshalling the use of very powerful technologies for for good or ill. And we've got, one could argue, a, a more Chinese model, which is let's look at surveillance. Let's harness technology not only to enable us to do things, but use it as a way of surveilling people and what they're up to in ever greater detail. And we enter a world of mega surveillance and there's questions about what does that look like and who gets to choose what's right or wrong and all the rest of it but that represents a more totalitarian turn in terms of human development or do we look at other ways of trying to solve that problem like minimizing the amount of conflict in the world where people will be motivated to use technology for ill might potentially is one way of starting to nudge things in a better direction. But these are deep questions that 
we will have to wrestle with and think about. And I started to do some research on this and I, I know you've been looking at it as well. So this is another interesting area we, we will definitely need to deep dive into in our series. And I, for one, am really, really hopeful that we can avoid a 1984 situation of mass surveillance. But one of the things that that does bring up to me, which I think is another theme that we'll definitely be diving into and it might regularly feature, is the, the kind of tension that's playing out between centralization, the command and control structures of trying to control all of these movements and all of this uncertainty versus decentralization and actually empowering individuals on an individual basis to control these networks. For example, cryptocurrencies is a really good example of decentralization versus the centralization overreaching totalitarian-esque governments trying to control things that they can't necessarily control. It's almost like trying to build a dam where you just know at some point that dam is going to break. You know, there's only so much you can do before the technology can even surpass big institutions, big government structures that are trying to suppress the gradual progression or the, it's not even going to be gradual, it's going to be exponential progression of technology, essentially. Absolutely. There's just going to be so many fascinating topics for us to explore. But this notion of command and control, the sense that one could create certainty on the world by issuing edicts, command, control, is something that's been so dominant in human thinking. And it brings into the spotlight our historical relationships with knowledge, power and authority and how we control things and control people. And the top-down ways of thinking about that have dominated for quite some time. The idea that the centre knows everything, issues instructions, the edge simply feeds back and receives its next instruction. This kind of factory-based hierarchical model of how the world works is bumping up against a world, as we talked about earlier, that's far more complex and has more in tune with an ecosystem, more from the world of biology, from the world of engineering. And how to make decisions in a complex world where there's so much going on, there's no way the center could ever be in possession of the information needed to make all the right decisions at the edge. So undoubtedly and unavoidably, it calls for more distributed forms of decision-making and understanding, which is a letting go of some of the power and authority of the center to allow individuals and local groups to take more decisions for themselves in reflection that they are closer to what's changing in front of them and the context that they're trying to engage with. How does that get done? And how do we think about that? And how do we move from a world of rules and instructions to more of a complex adaptive world where you're dealing with constraints and enablers and thinking about principles. And one of the interesting things that sort of sits and hovers above all of this is historical attempts to think about that through the role that religions, or more recently, ideologies have had in terms of giving us an organizing framework, a philosophical framework to inform decision-making, even when you're not receiving instructions. At least we're all living within a common frame of understanding with a common purpose that we're working towards with some higher level principles that if we can all adopt those or orient ourselves towards that, then our local decision-making will be in accordance with the purpose. This is the fascinating role that 
religions have played in the past and more recently ideologies as almost sub-religions but ideologies have often ended very badly so there is danger in how we think about this but absolutely distributed decision making in a complex world is the way forward how do we do that psychologically technically there are many enablers that we can explore and should explore And when you were saying that about religions and ideologies, the other thing that came to my mind, which is very, very closely connected, is philosophy as well. And in a way, like the way that Plato internalized Socrates and had that frame of reference to what he was doing is another example of how people internalize a vision, a way of being, which enables them to make decisions on their own, in their own agency, their own responsibility through a kind of role model that they can base themselves upon in a way that a Christian has internalized Jesus and the way that they live to be a follower of Christ. It it is an organizing principle that is so, so important to their frame of reference, which until you mentioned that to me just now, Mm -hmm. I've never really thought about how important that is as an organizing principle because what we're really talking about, and again, I keep saying this, these things will keep popping up in our conversations. Mm -hmm. And this is another one that I think will come up a lot is we're shifting from And we have shifted from, and we're in the process of doing so still, an industrial worldview, a mechanized worldview Mm. into, I don't know what we can really call it, but let's just say an information-based world, an information age that's based on a more self-organizing worldview. And we're still dealing with the legacy of the industrial world in a world that's already changed, but doesn't know how it's changed. And I think when I was saying earlier about those two boxes, things worth keeping, new things worth embracing, and the tensions between those. I don't think we've put everything into the right boxes just yet. A really great example is moving to remote working is a product of the information age. Going to work, clocking in, that feeling is like being in a factory, is being in a product line. Yeah. It's a product of the industrial age, even if you don't work in a factory. When you go to school, schools are organized in a fashion that produces you to be part of a world that no longer exists. Yeah. So to have those conversations as well and help people to understand the shift that we're going through or already maybe have gone through would be a brilliant thing for us to talk about. Yeah, this is, oh my goodness, I'm really looking forward to this. So knowledge and wisdom come into this as well. You were mentioning Socrates and Plato and Plato's internalization of Socrates' ideas and philosophy. One of the interesting things we take a little step back from philosophy is one of the things that philosophy seeks to address, I think, is that at one level we are biological creatures. So we have our appetites and our desires afforded to us by our evolutionary history. And those are important. They guide us in what we, you know, the, the need to mate, to eat, to seek security and safety and bond and empathy and all those things that drive us in historical ways towards behaviors that led to the maximization of the likelihood we would survive. But we can't be just driven by appetites. We have to reflect on them and think about what the right course of action should be for any given situation we find ourselves in. So how do we challenge our own appetites and desires and instincts to think more wisely about how to act and how do we seek the wisdom that can inform us in how to do that and the role of history and myth and stories shared through the civilizations i think probably 
crystallized into religions that seem to afford us some sacred truths that always seem to ring true, that seem to come from beyond us. They're almost like the wisdom of the universe is speaking to us through a distillation of, of the wisdom handed down from hundreds of thousands of years. But the interesting thing about the last 2,000 years in particular was this, which I think you know we might land on this a little bit, is Nietzsche's observation that one of the triumphs of Christianity was to give a single holistic account of the origin and meaning of the universe and our place in it. And that had some principles of how to live well, that even when power and authority, which was often quite primitive, and the tools at its disposal quite weak, still managed to unify Western civilization around a common story and purpose of how to live and what the point and meaning of life was. And Nietzsche's interesting comment around the sort of scientific revolution and the Enlightenment was the reason and rationality that existed in Christianity itself, the need to know what is true, manifested itself in the originating and early science, which then more and more sought to prove what is and what isn't through scientific experimentation, to the point that that way of thinking seemed to be revealing God's world to us. And as we racked up our knowledge of how things worked and started to understand the mathematical relationship, we can make predictions about the world. And suddenly the world seemed as though it was predictable and understandable by man. No longer did we need God. And Nietzsche's comment was that in displacing and deposing religion or Christianity, we opened up the space where man himself or mankind or humankind could start to think about building his own heaven on earth and the enterprise of building a human-centered world was brought into existence where we ourselves could decide what we think was right or wrong. And this mixture of a very scientific way of thinking, which led to industrial thinking and industrialization, which is still, as I'm sure we'll explore, has its echoes in many of the institutions and ways we think today, became the dominant theme. And science is fantastic at revealing what is but in Hume's great distinction, it's not very good at telling you what ought, the is-ought distinction, what ought to be is a moral question. And how do we answer what ought to be? Because science can't tell us that. It comes back to these moral questions and from where do we draw our morality to talk about what kind of world we want to be in and how we should be with each other. And rolling up to the present day, where we have so much complexity and so much in the way of existentially challenging technology, exponential technology, how ought we to live and how ought we to be with each other? How do we answer these questions in a world that is increasingly marginalized these religious questions? How do we formulate an idea of that that isn't nihilism, which is we just give up on it and we just live the best possible life, which is one response to that, which Nietzsche pointed out, or the other one, which is man would become God himself and dictate through ideology what is the right way. And those who don't believe would be heretics. And as we saw in the 20th century, a lot of people got killed for not conforming to what the ideology called for. 
So we seem to be living in a world at the moment where we're morally confused with massively powerful scientific inventions. So how ought we to live, I think, sits as a kind of meta crisis or meaning crisis that sits over the whole drama of the world as it is now and where it's going. I think the hubris of having your own Uberman, trying to pull your own moral values up by your bootstraps and mm. say, this is the way we should live, frightens me. Because I think what tends to happen is that, especially in these ideologies or any person's mind, when they think this is how we ought to live, they tend to pull from the moral law that exists in our world. Let's just say, yeah. this is how I see it. And they, they take one component of the moral law and say, this is the most important part of it. And then they make everything around one part, but then they neglect all of the other parts because they believe their vision, their hierarchy of values is more important than say someone else's hierarchy of moral values. And as soon as we get into that realm where we're trying to figure out what ought to be, very, very, very easy to get lost in our own hubris. And it's happened throughout history. Yeah, absolutely right. And this is where the sort of echoes of Socrates need to come back. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. And for many people, he was one of the wisest people that ever existed. But when asked whether he had knowledge and wisdom, he stated that he didn't think he did. And one of the interesting things is humility. It's almost like the more that you know, the more that you know you don't know. It's like the, the more you venture into the world of knowledge and wisdom, the more that you can see there's a vast expanse of an area that I'd never even thought about or contemplated. So one of the counters to ideology is to have a kind of epistemic, uh, the, the study of knowledge, epistemic humility, the sense that I don't know everything there is to know about most things. I might know quite a lot about something, but I certainly don't know what there is about most things. And therefore, rather than be absolutely definite in my assumptions of what is and judge people on that and try and force change into the world based on my certainties to have a degree of humility that I only think I know and there's so much more out there that could challenge my understanding if only I was to see it and engage with it and become wiser because of it and therefore it really calls for all of us I think to have some kind of humility. We believe what we think we believe, but we should also open the door that others may know more than we do about something, or there's knowledge still to gain. And therefore, this importance of dialogue, dialectic, the ability to talk with each other, to explore subjects together, even if we may have seemed to come from the opposite side, that is a process of coming together to explore, to reveal more knowledge that we can both gain wisdom and hopefully become more informed about how we take our own lives forward and that of society writ large. And for all the things we're talking about with the complexity and the technology and the threats, if we can't engage with each other in a creative dialogue, dialectic process to explore together what the issues of the world are and how we might formulate ways forward that can bring the best that everyone has to offer. This is, I think, part of how we think and how should think about the future. And hopefully through our dialogues, we can bring out our own perspectives and show people what dialogue and dialectic might even look like. <laughs> Yeah, and I think maybe even just doing an episode talking through what dialectic is, explaining that, breaking it down to understand, because that's going to be 
basically how every episode is played out. It's me and you just bouncing ideas and building off that. And, and the more that people have these kind of conversations, the more we can achieve together. And I th think one of the things that we found in our siloed worlds is that we surround ourselves in echo chambers. We're not able to see beyond our ideological bubbles. And one of the things we need to do is break out of that and create these environments where we can cross these bridges and talk to each other. And we want to see that on a political level, of course, we're not going to be deep diving too much into that world, but also in different industries and in different sciences, there is always a natural tendency towards dogma. Yeah. And, and some people just imagine that that doesn't exist in science, but there is such a thing as scientism. There is such a thing as dogma within the scientific community. And we need to be finding ways through dialectic, through crossing these ideological divides, to be having these conversations, and to be creating these environments where we can unpick ideas and create new insights and then use those insights to be shared throughout our system, throughout yeah. our communities on a personal level, a community level, national level. And I personally think this is one point of optimism that I do have is with the proliferation of podcasting, of audio being accessible to everyone, that is something that we will see in our lifetimes. Yes. And it's a conundrum in some ways that one of the wonders of human civilization, especially in the last few hundred years, has been the sheer explosion of knowledge. Science has contributed hugely to that, but knowledge, not only about science, but about ourselves, each other the world has been revealed in knowledge to us. And one could hope that with the richness of that, we can make higher, more informed decisions to bring about a better world. But what we're increasingly finding is that this knowledge is overwhelming. It's contributing towards the complexity. So how to synthesize and bring together knowledge in meaningful ways for us as individuals and collectives in terms of how to live is the act of synthesizing and making sense of knowledge. Like what higher order abstractions can we bring shows us what this knowledge actually means for ourselves and each other in terms of how to live. And I think cross-functional insights spanning different domains will yield some of this collective abstract cross-subject insights that we're so yearning for. And one of the in interesting ways of making sense in this particular, this sort of unifying, synthesizing way, is also the role of the arts. Because through metaphor, analogy, storytelling, or poetry, what it does is appeals to a different sense to encountering knowledge and wisdom, rather than it being factually laid out for us through the prism of a poem or through the prism of a good novel or even through film itself something of the drama of the human condition something of the understanding of what is and what could be is revealed to us through metaphor and story that can yield it's so as though we can see something the other side of the veil of all this knowledge something is revealed to us about how to be and how to live and so i think the arts have something to contribute to this over and beyond just the science and facts and our sort of inverted commas rationality. So we need to bring all our dispositions to bear to create the wisdom that we need, I think. Yeah, it's a brilliant point. What that makes me think of is the difference between knowledge and information. And I think that we are inundated now in the information age by information so it's not actual knowledge and what artists are able to do what brilliant communicators are able to do 
they're able to transform information. They're able to see through the noise into the signal. And I think these artists, these communicators, these people that are able to transform information into knowledge yes, are so powerful. And then on top of that, the people that are able to take that knowledge and transform knowledge into wisdom is where we need to be. Absolutely. What is the right knowledge for the right situation and the right context? How do we apply our knowledge in a generative fashion for our individual and collective well-being? That requires, as you say, knowledge. And it, it's another way of talking about what we've just been talking about. We have this, imagine that triangular pyramid of data process into information, process to knowledge and process into wisdom. That triangle has become incredibly flatter because we've got shitloads of data, loads of information. So loads of people know a lot of stuff, but very few people now could claim to have a deep knowledge over a particular area or multiple areas. And almost no one has got the wisdom to look across the whole to be able to say, well, given all of this, how should I act and how might we act in the future? What should we do? So we have a crisis of wisdom. So we need not only to know more things and continue our scientific pursuit to see how the world works and create more facts and information, but we need new ways of synthesizing this information into digestible and usable knowledge and wisdom. Maybe that's one of the areas where technology might also help us. And that's an interesting area we could look into also with regards to future machine learning and what have you. And just a pointer on that, there are apparently over a million research papers on health and biology produced every year. There's no way in hell any doctor or any researcher could read a million papers. So there's a hell of a lot of research that's regurgitating research that's already been done or not taking into account insights that have already been generated. So the use of machine learning to aggregate the combined knowledge of a million papers per year would be extremely valuable act of synthesis to support the further generation of human knowledge and wisdom just in health and biology. So there are really interesting angles there for technology to support us in that, but we have to remain curious to and see importance in the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and not get distracted by the copious amounts of information often presented to us with hyper-stimulation through our never-ending scrolls and all the rest of it. (laughs) Just to add to that as well, we often talk about how the economy is changing and certain jobs are going obsolete, but there's almost this completely new layer of the economy that can be unlocked now, which is the curator's of information into knowledge. And I think that having a kind of episode where we deep dive into information in general and how that gets transformed to knowledge would be important. Juxtaposed with how information now is weaponized to create narratives Mm -hmm. to influence human behavior, because now there's so much information that you can actually cherry pick and create any narrative you want. And we see that today all over the place with different ideologies vying for your attention. So information can be weaponized, but it can also be used for good. And we're constantly in that world where we're struggling with, okay, how do we transform information into knowledge that leads to wisdom? Can a new economy arise from that? What are the dangers? In the information age, what are we faced with right now? It's taking up our time. It's distracting us. It's worrying us. It's creating anxiety. What are going to be the next things that lead us through that? Yeah, it's a really important area to look at. And there's a risk 
as our systems try and control our thinking and what we do, that there's something missed in the potential of humanity, the potential of all of us. Our brains will have 100 billion neurons, average 14,000 connections. There are more pathways through the human brain than known atoms in the universe. So the complexity of our brain, the potential for creativity is unfathomable. It's huge. And we think about our brains, you know, in evolutionary terms, the last few thousand years have been nothing in evolutionary time. So we've essentially evolved from small tribes and tribal living to one where we can have Mozart creating the most beautiful symphonies or Einstein coming up with theories of general relativity. The, the potential of the human mind to come up with the most amazing art, the most amazing science, the most amazing insights is huge. So one way of thinking about it, rather than controlling people to conform to what some dumbed-down institutions want us to do, is how can we use knowledge and information to empower us all to be the most creative we possibly could be? And what would arise out of that if we gave, you know, what, what have we got now? So 9 billion people on the planet to enable people to reach the full potential of their creative capability would unleash a wave of creativity and beauty, one could argue, into the world that would be unimaginable. Isn't that an exciting thing we should be thinking about creating rather than trying to box people in to conform them for pre-programming them to behave in certain ways to certain stimulus? This is such a dumbed-down way of thinking of human potential. I love the idea of us talking about beauty as well, which is something that I feel it's difficult because it's a very broad term, but I feel like in general, we tend to neglect and we've demoted it on a hierarchy of things that seem to be important. Safety, security, comfort are obviously very high, but the idea of having something beautiful in our lives, we've neglected and we kind of stripped out in this old mechanistic worldview of what the world should be like in this massive kind of engine of society, rather than saying, well, what is beauty? Why is it important to mm. our well-being, to human flourishing and creating environments in which these geniuses can flourish and can recognize patterns within the complexity of the world and express it in a way that enriches people's lives needs to find a way of being valued. I don't know if it can be valued economically, but one could argue if you look at the beauty that's found in Europe, for example, from the Renaissance era, the amount of wealth that generates through tourism into the Italian economy or, or any other region of Europe that was inspired by these incredible geniuses, there is clearly value there. So how do we really change the narrative to say, well, we need this also from a capitalistic perspective? Yes, there is something mysteriously enchanting about beauty that you rightly point out we have an uneasy relationship with today. When one confronts and encounters something beautiful, there is a phenomenological kind of experience a kind of sense of wonder. It stops you in your track. It fills you with a feeling of awe and reverence to something which is beautiful. And it's almost as though the universe is speaking to us about some, some harmony that's playing out in front of us that is so good in some ways that it enchants us, whether it's a beautiful sunset, a beautiful person, or a piece of music that can bring us to tears. That's not just thinking about it as information and knowledge. That's having an experience, confronting some aspect of reality that fundamentally shifts us into a kind of place of transcendence that 
is there for a reason. Beauty is trying to say something to us about the state of the world and how things might and should or could be. The Greek philosophers saw beauty as fundamental. Beauty spoke to us about something really important. Beauty, truth and goodness were some of the three core pillars that we should contemplate for what is a good life. And as you say, beauty in architecture, which was recreated in the Renaissance, Renaissance, the sort of renewal, most wonderfully uh, exemplified in the architecture of many of the Italian cities. You walk amidst and amongst that architecture, you feel different. Not only is it beautiful to the eyes, it lifts the soul. It's a space that is enchanted and you walk through, you feel differently. And there's something quite dehumanizing and mechanistic about the notion in architecture of form, function, and beauty, jettinousing its beauty and becoming form and function. And we have these architectural styles that become arguably throughout the 20th century much more cubist and blocky. It was all about efficiency and economics. It was not about creating an environment that would fill the spirit with enchantment of just witnessing it or being in its presence or inhabiting it. Beauty was important to people like Steve Jobs, and one could argue that's the success behind Apple. I remember seeing a video once in which it was explained that various models were presented to him, and they may work absolutely perfectly from an engineering point of view, but if they were not beautiful, he would send them back. Go back, try again. That's not beautiful enough. Beauty, he knew beauty is a form of enchantment, a form of wonder that when you apprehended it, picked it up, held it, possessed it, you possessed something more than a thing. You possessed something transcendent. And Apple have continued to make beauty foundational to their product design, the design of their shops. Beauty is interwoven into the fabric of what they provide and it's enchanted us and we want to buy one and we want to have one. So there are lots of evidence there to suggest beauty is important to the human condition. And if we were to reconnect with that and think about, you know, what are beautiful things? What are beautiful ideas? What is beautiful art, beautiful culture, beautiful buildings, beautiful businesses, beautiful institutions, beautiful world? I think there's something in that orientation that leads us to a thinking or a direction of thought that could lead to the better world that we've been talking about. It's like finding ways to almost harmonize with Plato's archetypal forms. I don't know, finding ways to re-enchant the world that the mechanistic worldview that is a legacy of the industrial age stripped out of our lives. And that's also seen in our disconnect from nature, for example. It's mirrored in so many different ways, but another theme for this podcast that would make me really happy to have embedded within what we're talking about is re-enchantment, the reintroduction to wonder. The idea that not only should we be looking to make things beautiful, but beauty is around us all the time. And one of the things we spoke about, I remember when we were talking about the Renaissance just on a phone call, because Andy and I always just have random long chats, which led to this podcast. I personally see now a very similar situation occurring in today's world as had occurred just before the Renaissance began, where there was a kind of dogmatization of knowledge and silos being created Mm. in the scholastic world. And this is in the, the kind of medieval Christian world where they were treating knowledge 
in a certain way that led to silos of information. And all of a sudden, new knowledge was introduced into the Renaissance. And there was a breaking down of silos and an influx of different things that inspired people, different crossovers, different cross-pollination of ideas that led to this influx of beauty and led to this influx of change and wonder. And in a way, we're in a world that has become very dogmatic, very siloed, but we are now slightly opening up, starting to talk across different divides. My second point to be optimistic for today is the fact that that is happening. And with this idea of sharing knowledge, important that it's knowledge, not information, we can see that as a potential for our future, which we need to have in our world to have meaning and have a sense of optimism. Yes, I agree that looping right back to the beginning of this call, this moment in time in the midst of the COVID crisis has jolted us. It's as though the matrix, the universe had had a shudder and suddenly things that were out of focus came into focus. We're almost like the goldfish that didn't realize it was in water, suddenly seeing the water, suddenly seeing that we're immersed in something that we need to take account of and take care of. And we need to reflect on this moment and draw out of it the fact that we do occupy little islands and silos of knowledge and insight. But when we look out and look across and look sideways, we see that there's other information, there's other knowledge, and there are other people who are also interested and willing to communicate and share. And I think this is a moment where we're starting to see, this is is one of the wonders of modern technology, that we're able to share and communicate through this digital realm and bring together different forms of knowledge, different ways of seeing. And one of the really amazing facets that I think we also perhaps ought to explore in one of our podcasts is facet of emergence, that if you bring information, knowledge, wisdom together in unique ways that enable some form of synthesis to occur, then what emerges out of that is not one plus one equals two, but one plus one equals three or four, that there is a greater transcendental wisdom that comes out of bringing disparate things together, which gives us a whole new step up in our understanding of ourselves and the world. And that if we can lift each other up through this communal sharing and combination and synthesis of ideas and perspectives, then there is the real possibility for garnering and sharing wisdom more widely and therein lies a positive opportunity for us looking forward so that's the end of the episode as i mentioned at the start we do cover a ton of ground in this but don't worry we will be going deeper and taking some of the themes that have emerged from this conversation and turning those themes into whole episodes That was what I would call an unpacking of everything we think we'd like to talk to you about over the course of this series. We really hope that you've enjoyed the conversation. For us, Meta Perspective is about looking beyond and above our current moment and thinking about how it connects to the bigger picture. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you want to follow along on this journey, do subscribe to the show. And if you want to support us, one of the things that you could do that would be really, really amazing would be to share this episode with someone that you think might enjoy it. And of course, if you want to reach out to us, you can send an email to hello at metaperspective.io, all one word. We would absolutely love to hear from you. And any feedback that you have is always very welcome. Until the next episode, take care.